The Biden administration today unveiled new fuel economy rules intended to speed up the country's move toward having all electric passenger vehicles. If the proposal becomes reality, new cars sold in the country would have to get an average of 58 miles a gallon in about a decade. It's Friday, July 28th, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Russia wraps up its high-level summit with African countries today. It wants stronger economic ties to the continent, although one expert says Africa's ties to Russia are more symbolic. It's a proxy for saying we're not picking sides. It's a proxy for pushing back on Western hegemony. Also, an MIT Technology Review reporter tells us about innovations in air conditioning technology. These stories and the forecast, along with the Wall Street numbers, are coming up next. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. 103, 108, 110. Those are the temperatures the heat index is hitting in major East Coast cities such as Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and New York City. The National Weather Service has excessive heat warnings and advisories covering more than 170 million people are in effect across the eastern half of the U.S. as well as smaller portions of the Southwest and California. Climate expert Jeremy Hoffman of Groundwork USA sheds light on the communities that stand to be most severely affected. Communities of color tend to have higher rates of heat-related illnesses, and um, we have observed directly that these neighborhoods tend to be warmer uh, by several degrees on average during these heat waves. Hoffman says the disproportionate impact includes the extreme elderly residents who rely on public transportation and have to be outside, as well as those who work outdoors. Scientists have been warning that human-driven climate change is fueling the intensity and frequency of extreme weather events. Leaders of an apparent coup in Niger say they have replaced the country's president. However, the U.S. says there is still diplomacy going on to restore constitutional order in Niger, a key U.S. partner. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has the latest. While a general claims to be the new head of state in Niger, the U.S., the United Nations, and a regional African group are all backing the ousted president, Mohamed Bazoum. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the U.S. is watching closely. We believe uh, that there is still space for diplomacy here and that that diplomacy is actively being pursued, not just by the United States, but by our, our allies and partners and our African partners as well. The U.S. has about 1,000 troops in Niger, an important base for counterterrorism efforts in the region. Kirby says there are no plans yet to change the U.S. footprint. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will appear for the first time at the same campaign event in Iowa tonight. Trump remains a frontrunner for the 2024 Republican nomination, and his rivals see an Iowa win as key to defeating him. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters is more. Trump has shied away from events with the rest of the crowded field. He's also criticized Iowa's Republican Governor Kim Reynolds for remaining neutral in the run-up to Iowa's caucuses. Ron DeSantis has been trying to reset his stalled campaign for two weeks, including a two-day bus tour here. That's Clay Masters reporting 13 Republican presidential candidates are set to take the stage in the Republican Party of Iowa's Lincoln Dinner in Des Moines. At last check on Wall Street, before the close, the Dow was up 176 points, roughly half a percent at 35,459. 
This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A major announcement this afternoon on the overdue Massachusetts state budget. House and Senate Democrats say they've reached an agreement in principle on the fiscal year 2024 budget. Leaders of the conference committee say they're now working on details to finalize a bill. The legislature could pass it on Monday and send it on to the governor. One month into the new budget year, the state is operating on a temporary spending plan. A heat advisory remains in effect for most of the state through tomorrow night. But the National Weather Service says it looks as if we will not hit an official heat wave. That would be three straight days of at least 90 degrees. Temperatures have yet to break into the 90s today. But as National Weather Service meteorologist Kyle Peterson reports, you can still feel the heat if you're outside over the next few hours. Even though we haven't hit 90 yet, heat index values are definitely a close to 90 or above 90 right now. So just make sure you're limiting your time outdoors. Um, If you are outdoors, stay plenty hydrated and have ways to be able to go cool off. The city of Worcester is using its senior center and library as cooling centers. The city's commissioner of health and human services, Maddie Castile, says they're concerned for people without homes and those with chronic conditions. The people who get most aggravated with the heat is going to be people with already medical problems, whether it's heart disease and um, and they may present with those uh, with those symptoms, but exacerbated by the heat. A study by the Urban Climate Consulting Group estimates about eight people a year die of heat in Worcester. National Weather Service confirms that a tornado did touch down in Dublin, New Hampshire yesterday. The Weather Service says the damage is consistent with an EF1 tornado with winds as high as 95 miles an hour. Yesterday afternoon, a trained weather spotter reported a funnel cloud reaching the ground near Keene State College. It caused extensive tree damage. 89 degrees now in the Boston area. The heat should press on for another 20 hours or so. A heat advisory stays up until 8 o'clock tomorrow night. Look for sunshine and clouds this afternoon and evening. Kind of steamy out there right now. And then for tonight, starlit skies, about a half moon out there. Should be in the mid-70s. Tomorrow pushing 90 once again. Skies should start up uh, with sunshine before rain and thunderstorms move in during the second half of the day tomorrow. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Recession? What recession? The numbers are in and things are looking pretty darn good. Painting a picture of insatiable American shoppers and an economy that seems to be looking ahead through rose-tinted glasses. NPR's Alina Seljuk and Stacey Vanek-Smith have been studying all these numbers. They are both here in the studio to tell us what they have found and they have brought a bag. Alina. Here's the bag. What's the bag? It's a first, actually, for me. A paper bag in the studio. Yeah, because the theme of the economy this summer is spending. Let me say that again. A really surprising amount of spending. So we thought we should jump in and spend some money, too. So we went shopping and we picked up some of the things that Americans are buying right now to help paint a picture of what is going on in the economy. Excellent. You've brought loot. Okay, what what did you bring? All right. Let's start with this Reese's peanut butter cup. Oh, yes. The big one. And some Coke to wash it down. Would you like a a Coke, Mary Louise? No, but I will take those Reese's. Pass them over. (laughs) Here you go. (laughs) I'm going to throw... 
the you two have brought me these wives that are making these products, Hershey and Coca-Cola, were among many that basically sang praises to shoppers, saying they've been raising prices, trying to cover higher costs like corn syrup, but people are still willing to pay up for brand names. And this has major implications for our economy because all of this spending that we're doing has the economy going gangbusters. We heard yesterday the economy is growing at a rate of 2.4 percent. That was a lot higher than people were expecting. And it is all this money that we are throwing around for goods, things like chocolate and Coke, but also for services. We are shelling out a ton of money for things like restaurants, shows, summer travel, which brings us to the next item in our haul. <laughs> okay, this is less exciting. This is, this is like the, the hotel doorknob sign? It is a do not disturb sign from my Hilton Hotel, which I technically did not buy. I borrowed this mm-hmm. sign, but I did pay for my stay. <laughs> and so did a lot of other people. Travel is huge. It's hard to overstate. Hilton, the hotel chain where Stacy borrowed her sign from, it had one of the more eye-opening reports this week. The company says people are spending more and more across all types of hotels, from the humble Garden Inn to the posh Waldorf Astoria. Here's CEO Chris Nassetta. And The other thing that's going on is I sort of kid not to, to be a smartass about it, but part of it's pricing, right? Pricing, as in hotel prices, are at record highs. And Hilton was kind of like, good, we'll keep going as long as people are into it. And so far, travelers are not really pushing back. You could say companies are having a hot profit summer. A hot profit summer. Okay. And speaking of hot profits... I'm pulling something out of the bag. Oh, my God. What is this? Pink ponytail? It is a pink hair clip um, that I purchased in honor of the impact that all things female are having on the economy, or as you could say, the she-conomy. The she-conomy? <laughs> we may need to workshop that. It's a better name. But there is no question that a lot of our good economic news is coming from the ladies right now. Take Taylor Swift and Beyonce. They are shaking up economies. The Federal Reserve just produced a report on the economic impact of Taylor Swift. Apparently, she's adding $5 billion to the global economy. $5 billion. $5 billion with her tour. And Beyonce got a lot of criticism from economists for pushing up inflation in the country of Sweden. <laughs> because apparently, when she had a concert there, the prices of hotels, food, and everything else went up. And, of course, we've got to talk about our lady of the hour. Barbie. Barbie, indeed. She's been busting all of these box office records. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. I haven't actually gone to see it yet because I've spent all week listening to earnings calls. Don't feel sad for me. Um, It was kind of fascinating because brand after brand was saying basically they're charging more. They keep waiting for people to resist and people are still buying. And why? Because I feel like y'all are always here reporting to us about rising prices and how people are struggling and tightening their budget belts. Has all that gone away? Surely not. Well, part of the answer is that we are going into a lot of debt to buy all this stuff. Credit card debt is at a record high right now. And it's been at a record high for a while. It's just been rising and rising. Also, though, we do have more money to spend. Uh, People are getting raises. Wages have been rising all across the country. 
I heard this a lot from companies, too. The labor costs are going up for them. They're having to pay higher wages. They're offsetting these costs, charging more for our meals. But also they're trying to get maybe robots to do some of the work. Like Chipotle is working on Autocado, which is a machine that makes its guacamole, uh, which apparently is a pretty tedious task. I actually um, got some chips and guac here. <laughs> It's all the snacks. Um, this one was made by hand by a woman. Okay. This all sounds pretty good. Like higher wages sounds like good news for, for workers. Uh, it also sounds like good news for the economy because we seem to be spending all this money on all this stuff. Well, it is, like you say, good news for workers and for companies, but it has economists pretty nervous because when wages are rising like this, it can create something called a wage price spiral. So when companies raise people's wages, they charge higher prices to be able to afford those wages. And then we all go ask for raises to be able to afford those higher prices. And it can create this cycle that can really push up inflation. And in fact, this week, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates once again. They are now at their highest level in 22 years. I thought inflation was falling. Inflation is falling. That is true. Um, But the Federal Reserve has been stressing over and over again that some prices are still very much rising. We're not out of the woods yet. And like Alina was saying, a lot of companies are testing the pricing limits. So the Federal Reserve has said They may need to take more action that could lead to job losses and possibly an economic downturn in our future. That is NPR Stacey Vanek-Smith and Alina Seljuk. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. And please pass the guacamole over here, please, (laughs) right away. Russian President Vladimir Putin wraps up his high-level summit with African leaders in St. Petersburg today. While Western nations have largely isolated Moscow after the invasion of Ukraine, many African leaders have maintained closer links, treading the tricky path of diplomatic neutrality. Russia wants to use the summit to strengthen its ties in Africa. But as NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports, Russia faces an uphill task. This slick video produced by the Russian Foreign Ministry shows a succession of African leaders arriving at St. Petersburg Airport, all smiles and shaking hands with their hosts. But in the end, it hasn't been the gathering Russia hoped for. Only 17 African leaders turned up this time, far fewer than the 43 that attended the first summit in Sochi in 2019. And the impact of the Ukraine invasion has been significant. Global prices of grain and fertilizers have soared. This month, Russia exited the Black Sea grain deal and is now blocking ships from exporting Ukrainian grain. So Putin announced a plan. Russia would deliver free grain to six countries to cushion the blow. But it remains to be seen how it will work and if this summit will truly signal its ties are growing, not just in the handful of countries where its activities have sparked concern. This action film is one of the images Russia has tried to project. The opening music from The Tourist, a 2021 movie financed by Wagner and set in the Central African Republic. In the narrative, the so-called Russian gladiators weighed in to save an African country. It's not that far from reality. Russian ties with their governments have deepened in the Central African Republic and Mali, 
Wagner mercenaries now work side by side with those countries' armies. They've left a long trail of human rights abuses and extrajudicial killings. But across Africa, Russia's activities are different and more complicated. Russia's value right now is as a signal that the West is not always going to get what it wants. Amaka Anku is head of Eurasia Group's Africa practice and said aside from some countries like Qatar, Mali, Algeria and Egypt, Russia's ties are more symbolic. It's a proxy for saying we're not picking sides. It's a proxy for pushing back in some ways on Western hegemony. In the last few years, competition for stronger ties and influence in Africa has grown more intense between countries like Russia, China and the US. But Russia's economic ties are currently weaker. It doesn't have money. It barely buys anything from Africa. It's not selling that much to Africa. In West Africa, much of the relationships is around security because that's what it has to offer. In Southern Africa, much of the relationship is around historical bonds because the Soviet Union was there for liberation movements when the West wasn't. And Russia's isolation from the West means it must boost its ties elsewhere. It's important to keep in mind, for example, that the total trade volume between Russia and Africa is less than that of Turkey. Dr. Samu Romani is an analyst and author of Russia and Africa. He says a key aim for the summit is improving its trade with African partners. Meanwhile, he says many African countries see the rise in competition as an opportunity. I think the African countries have uh, navigated the competitive terrain, I think, uh, quite deftly. They want to balance and maintain ties with the US, Europe, China, Russia. For Russia, the slick optics of the summit is about projecting its importance on the world stage. And more than ever, its ties to African countries are vital to that. Emmanuel Akimwotu, NPR News, Lagos. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Bikes versus cars in Berlin. That story still to come in about 20 minutes on WBUR. Stocks were back on the plus side today. The Dow rose a half percent. S&P rose a full percent to notch its third straight week of gains. And the Nasdaq picked up nearly 2 percent today. Cambridge-based Biogen is buying Riata Pharmaceuticals. Riata is based in Texas and focuses on drugs that treat rare diseases. The deal will cost Biogen more than $7 billion. It still has to be approved by regulators and by Riata shareholders. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton. Now enrolling for the upcoming year. A nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com And Circus Smirkus. New England's Traveling Youth Circus, coming to Waltham July 27th to 30th and Newbury August 4th and 5th. Tickets at Smirkus.org. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. 88 degrees now in the Boston area. WBR meteorologist Danielle Noy says we should get relief from the heat on Sunday, but until then it's going to be kind of swampy, including tonight temperatures only gradually cruise back through the 80s and then eventually into the 70s overnight. We'll be humid tomorrow with a high of 90, chance of a shower storm in the morning, especially south of the Mass Pike, then scattered storms in the afternoon and evening. A few storms could become severe tomorrow, damaging wind gusts, flooding the big threats. 
That brings in much less humid air, and we won't be nearly as hot on Sunday. High 75 to 80 with a blend of sun and clouds. A hit or miss brief shower is possible. That's Daniel Noyce. 88 degrees now in Boston. The time is 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations, including associations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. On a scorching summer day, there are fewer sounds more comforting than this. Air conditioning can provide not only comfort, but life-saving relief from relentless heat. But as you may have noticed from your summertime electricity bill, typical AC units use a ton of energy. So companies are coming up with new ways to make cooling off more energy efficient. Climate and energy reporter Casey Crownhart wrote about it this week for the MIT Technology Review. Hey, Casey. Hi, Juana. So Casey, you wrote that Not only is typical AC technology really energy intensive, but there's also this intense global demand for it in places where it's not already pervasive. Can you just start by giving us a sense of what that demand looks like, how much we're talking about? Absolutely. Um, I think we in the U.S. tend to think of air conditioning as being pretty much everywhere. But globally, that's definitely not the case. Um, Of the roughly 3 billion people that live in the hottest parts of the world, only about 1 in 10 has access to air conditioning. Um, And so as, you know, we've seen the last few weeks, temperatures are rising. So there's a huge demand for cooling um, that's expected to take off. Over the next few decades, we could see energy demand for air conditioning triple by 2050. Wow. Um, And that's about the same as adding a whole nother U.S. electrical grid on just to run all of those new air conditioners. I mean, that sounds like a huge feat. I know that you have been looking into some promising developments in AC technology, but like many people listening in on our conversation, I need a quick refresher on how a typical AC works and why it is that it sucks up so much energy. Yeah, you're definitely not alone in that. Um, But basically, the the way that an air conditioner works is that there's a refrigerant inside and it gets pumped around in a cycle. And so that refrigerant sucks up heat from inside of your house, apartment, building, and then it releases that heat out into the outside air. And so it can take a lot of energy. And, And a lot of that comes from also having to get humidity out of the air, getting water out of the inside and condensing it into a liquid and getting it out is is really energy intensive as well. You also write that one of the materials companies are turning to for these new AC systems are desiccants, like those little packets that you sometimes find in food packaging. How does that work? Yeah, so this is a really interesting kind of way to change up air conditioning technology, which you know hasn't changed too much since it was invented around 100 years ago. Desiccants are basically any kind of material that can suck moisture out of the air. So I talked about how you know humidity is a big part of that energy demand. And so how these desiccants can work is they're able to kind of take care of that humidity piece. And so then if you're pairing these materials with other kinds of cooling technologies, they can kind of cut down on the energy that's needed to cool spaces. 
So I'm sort of fascinated by these newer AC systems that you've been looking into. Tell us how much energy could they save potentially compared to standard units today? And would a cheaper electricity bill just be offset by a higher price tag on the unit itself? Really good questions. So I will say that a lot of the companies that are working on this are kind of still in the early stages. You know, they have kind of their pilot or demonstration systems out. But I talked to one company, they're called Blue Frontier, and they're based in Florida. And they say that they think that their system will be able to cut annual electricity use by between 50 and 80 percent. And they do say that it will probably be more expensive up front. They're targeting, you know, kind of a payback date of, you know, three to five years or so. That's how long it'll take for the efficiency improvements to kind of pay for themselves through lower energy bills. So for the rest of the lifetime of the unit, then you're kind of, you know, able to to see those savings. So Casey, then, is the bigger price tag up front a barrier for these new AC technologies being able to be adopted in places where demand is growing so much today, like in developing countries? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely can be. And that's the case today. There's actually a pretty big difference between, you know, the cheapest air conditioners on the market today and kind of the higher end ones that are already more efficient than those kind of lower end systems. Um, And so I think we're definitely going to need to see things like, you know, new business models from companies that help finance these models or policy from governments so that, you know, more people can actually get access to them climate and energy reporter Casey Crownhart of the MIT Technology Review. Casey, thank you. Thank you. A number of news outlets are now reporting the 75th Emmy Awards have been postponed due to ongoing strikes by Hollywood writers and actors. It's the first such delay since the Emmys were postponed after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Here's Frank Shurma, chairman of the Television Academy, which presents the awards announcing nominations back on July 12th and sounding like the September air date might not be set in stone. And join us for the 75th Emmy Awards currently planned for Monday, September 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox. NPR TV critic Eric Diggins is with us now. Hey there. Hi. Okay, tell me more about this delay and when we might actually see the Emmys broadcast. Yeah, it looks like those current plans didn't quite turn out. So so far, Fox and the TV Academy have refused to comment on the record, but the trade publication Variety reported yesterday that vendors working on the show were notified that the Emmys would be delayed. Now, the Los Angeles Times has reported the ceremonies moving to January, but I haven't yet heard a definitive date in my own reporting. This isn't particularly surprising to those of us who watch the industry. I mean, I said on this show, when the Emmy nominations were announced more than two weeks ago that I didn't expect the show to go on September 18th if the actors went on strike. And that's exactly what happened. You told us so. (laughs) We should have listened. Um, I will (laughs) note the Tony Awards did go on even in the wake of the writer's strike. Why can't the Emmys move forward? Well, in the past, you know, the TV Academy has indicated um, that they plan to stick with their original schedule of voting, which means final votes on nominees would begin August 17th and end August 28th. They're going to reveal publicly the winners whenever the telecast happens. But you got to remember that actors weren't on strike during the Tony Awards. Mm. And uh, the Tonys got the Writers Guild of America to agree not to picket them. So in the case of the Emmys, both the writers and the actors are 
barred from promoting projects that are covered by the strike. So most of the televised winners wouldn't be able to show up until the strikes are over. And it's a tough blow for the Emmys because they were looking forward to celebrating their 75th ceremony one year after the 2022 telecast, which drew the lowest ratings in the awards history. Uh huh. Well, that's an interesting point. Given yeah. uh, those low ratings, given that audiences have shown less interest in award ceremonies in recent years, do we even care that the Emmy Awards are delayed? Well, you know, I've always said uh, that events like the pandemic shut down and now these strikes accelerate trends in media that are already underway. So, yeah, it might accelerate a disinterest in the Emmys. But this is also an example of how the cost of these strikes are beginning to gather steam. The African-American Film Critics Association is also moving its TV Honors Awards from August to October 29th. This could be a really tough moment for the Emmys because the show airs in January 2024. It'll be honoring shows that aired quite a long time ago. Mm -hmm. The ceremony might look like a step behind shows like the Golden Globes and the Critics' Choice Awards, which are planned for early 2024, but they have later deadlines than the Emmys. I mean, years ago, the Emmys used to kick off the new fall broadcast TV season, but now you might have a situation where somebody like Jamie Lee Curtis, who did a great job on The Bear on uh-huh. FX, won't even be nominated for the Emmys, but she could win Golden Globes or Critics' Choice Awards. Alrighty, thank you, Eric. Thank you. That's NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Red Sox start up their week-long road trip tonight out in San Francisco with a three-game series with the Giants. It'll be Cutter Crawford on the mound for Boston and Logan Webb for the Giants. First pitch is at 10:15. Red Sox have won six of their last seven games and are at a season high eight games above 500. In the forecast, it's been hot today, but the National Weather Service says it did not reach 90 degrees, so there won't be a heat wave after all. It is now 88 degrees in the Boston area. Should dip to the mid-70s tonight. Tomorrow, waking up to sunshine with heavy rain and gusty winds that could move in by the afternoon. Highs about 90, sunny, and only about 80 on Sunday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. And Volante Farms, scooping Crescent Ridge ice cream and helping with the summer heat until 9 every night at the ice cream window. VolanteFarms.com for a list of outdoor concerts this summer. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we gave the Southwest some advice in dealing with the record heat. Maybe, Phoenix, you should not have named your city after a bird most famous for bursting into flames. I'm Karen Chi, in for Peter Sagal. Join us for more chit-chat about the weather with our guest, actor-director Randall Park, on this week's news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Nearly half of the country is experiencing dangerous heat as extreme temperatures expand from the southwest into the northeast and midwest, where cities like Philadelphia, D.C., and Boston are facing heat emergencies with triple-digit temperatures in the forecast. President Biden announced steps yesterday to protect workers from the effects of the prolonged heat. Here's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. I think what's outrageous is that at a time when millions of, of, um, of families and Americans are experiencing the impacts of climate change, you know, Republicans in Congress continue to try to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act and deny climate change, and that's actually what's dangerous. Meanwhile, climate scientists predict July will be the hottest ever on record because of two factors. 
climate change and the El Nino weather pattern that's driven up temperatures worldwide. As the high temperatures persist across the country, hospitals are seeing more folks with potentially deadly heat illness. Drew Hawkins of the Gulf States Newsroom reports on how doctors and first responders are dealing with the influx. The heat index is well over 100 degrees in New Orleans, and the streets are largely empty. With relentless heat the last few weeks, the city's EMS and hospitals have been treating more people with heat-related illness than ever before. When these patients come in, they really are some of the most critical patients that come into the hospital. Dr. Jeffrey Elder is the emergency room director at University Medical Center, the city's largest hospital. So they take priority. Uh, when a heat stroke patient comes in, they're just as critical as a patient having a stroke or a heart attack who's been in major trauma. Elder says a few people have already died because of the heat, and with temperatures expected to be dangerously high in August and September, he fears there may be more. For NPR News, I'm Drew Hawkins in New Orleans. On Wall Street, stocks finished higher across the board. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Anita Marketing Company is suing the Massachusetts Republican Party over what it says are more than $400,000 in unpaid bills. The company Mitcom says the Mass GOP hired it to produce or rather purchase uh, TV radio ads to promote Jeff Deal's gubernatorial campaign last year, but has not been paid. The expenditures were made under Mass GOP's previous chair. The current party chair, Amy Carnavali, declined to comment, saying she hasn't yet seen the suit. Research at UMass Amherst finds some cancer drugs may also treat Lyme disease. Microbiology professor Stephen Rich leads the UMass Center that conducts research into Lyme and other tick-borne illnesses. He says a Ph.D. student discovered similarities between cancer cells and Lyme disease bacteria, and that led to the test of a drug treatment. And there are a class of drugs which can be used to stop the growth of cancer cells. And so his very simple question was, I wonder whether these things could also stop the growth of Lyme disease cells. And lo and behold, in a test tube, that's precisely what some of them do. Rich says next steps include more testing and eventually human clinical trials. The findings are published in the journal Pathogens this month. It's going to be a big weekend for folk music lovers. The Lowell Folk Festival opens in Boarding House Park tonight. Maggie Holtzberg with the Massachusetts Cultural Council says there is a strong lineup of musicians. Melody Angel is a Chicago blues woman. Phenomenal. Fred Thomas has his band. He used to play with James Brown, which is I'm really excited to hear him and his sound. Also music from Afghanistan and Ukraine. Hot Club of Cowtown, Western Swing and Jazz. In Rhode Island, the Newport Folk Festival is already underway this afternoon. The band My Morning Jacket is a headliner of the weekend festival at Fort Adams State Park. Other headliners this year include Amy Mann, Jason Isbell, and Lana Del Rey. The legendary Newport Folk Festival has hosted uh, legends such as Bob Dylan and Joan Baez. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top-choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com slash NPR. Hazy sunshine today, leading to a clear night tonight. Temperatures around the mid-70s overnight. Then for tomorrow, clouds during the day. Thunderstorms spending part of the afternoon tomorrow, maybe partly sunny skies. Highs could come close to 90 degrees. Sunday, sunny, not even breaking 80. Support for NPR comes from this station 
And from BritBox, with a variety of British mysteries available for streaming, including all seasons of Luther, Father Brown, and Silent Witness. Available during Mystery Month at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Military leaders in Niger seized power from the country's democratically elected president this week, making it the third country in as many years to fall to a coup in the Sahel region of Africa. Niger is a key partner in the West's fight against terrorism. Just a few months ago, Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Niger and called it a model of democracy in the region. But with a new military government, it's unclear where the West and Niger go from here. Earlier today, National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby told reporters that a military takeover in Niger could cause the U.S. to end security cooperation with the government there. To discuss the regional and global implications, Usman Diallo joins us now. He's a senior researcher at Amnesty International in Dakar. Welcome. Thank you. With so many coups in the Sahel region just the last three years, what does this coup in Niger mean for the region? I think the uh, consequences of the coup d'etat in Niger are very dire, not only for uh, the region, but also for international partners, because Niger was the last stronghold of uh, democracy in the Sahel. As you have mentioned in the intro, it was seen as a bulwark against authoritarianism in the region. And the fact that military uh, leaders have taken over in Niger shows that the uh, Sahel is in a very dire situation right now, whether on uh, political governance, on uh, the military response to the insurgency, but also on human rights. Since the coup in Mali, the mercenary Wagner Group has stepped in for security assistance. What is the result of that partnership been? And do you think the Wagner Group will move into Niger? Uh, really, we can hear uh, sources close to the Wagner Groups uh, in different Telegram channels saying that Wagner is ready to collaborate and assist the Nigerian authorities in uh, tackling the insurgency, which shows the, their willingness to intervene in Niger. And I think we can conclude that the intervention of Wagner in Mali has been correlated with mass human rights abuses and violations, but also in the defiance by the authorities of Mali in uh, international norms related to uh, humanitarian law or human rights. I think upon hearing news of the coup in Niger, many were surprised to learn that the U.S. had a military presence in the country. But one of the reasons that the U.S. does have a military presence in Niger is to help the country fight the various terrorism groups in the region. At this point, do you have a sense of what may happen to these efforts now that the country is under new leadership? Yes. Usually when there is a coup d'etat, there is a standard suspension of the uh U.S. uh, military and defense partnership with uh, the new uh, authorities that have toppled uh, democratic regimes, such as is the case in in Niger right now. And I think the announcement made by Mr. John Kirby uh, earlier that you you mentioned in the intro shows that the U.S. intends to follow this uh, policy. We are talking about hundreds, close to a thousand U.S. soldiers in Niger, uh, about important bases uh, by the U.S. Air Force. And of course, you have all these U.S. trained personnel 
personnel that are in, in the country that support and train uh, the Nigerian military in counter-terrorist operations. And lastly, you are based in Senegal. Can you tell us what the regional reaction has been to what happened in Niger? What have you heard? I think the regional reaction has been uh, stupor and surprise, in, in a sense, because uh, Niger was seen as doing very well uh, against the insurgency. And uh, since 1990, there has been uh, like incremental steps towards democratic consolidation. And all of this has been spilled on the ground by the uh, military takeovers. And uh, if you look at the reaction of regional bodies, such as the economic communities of West African states, they have strongly condemned the coup d'etat. Usman Diallo, senior researcher at Amnesty International. Thank you. Thank you. The German capital's new conservative mayor was voted in on a promise to stand up for car drivers incensed about cyclists taking up road space. He says he does not want bike lanes to slow down cars. But as Esme Nicholson reports, cyclists are taking to the streets to do just that. When City Hall suspended the construction of 19 new bike lanes in Berlin last month, cyclists not only protested by occupying all traffic lanes, but they also took legal action. This worked and the city authorities backpedaled on their plans, but the announcement pitted car owners and cyclists against one another. And the messaging hasn't helped. I never said we'd act psychopaths that threaten parking spaces. That came from one of my employees without my authorization. Manja Schreiner is the city's new transport secretary. She says safety is key and the city definitely needs more cycle lanes, but that divvying up the city's roads fairly is a top priority. We want to keep as many parking spaces as possible. Put yourself in the position of someone who can no longer park outside their front door because of a bike path. Inge Kara is in that very position. She lives in Kreuzberg, where the Green-led district authorities are ignoring City Hall and removing parking spaces. What annoys me most about this claim is that it's easy to find an alternative and that I can park my car in a nearby multi-story. That's pure fiction. Kara says it already takes her half an hour to find somewhere to park in the evenings, and she watches in disbelief as construction workers remove cobblestones with pickaxes. They're taking the asphalt out, and the parking lots are going to be transferred into green spaces. Architect Matthias Heskamp is working together with the district council to free the neighborhood's streets of cars, although he says parking will still be available for those who can't get around by other means. Those parking lots, under discussion of those people who just use it for their sake of nice comfort, they are in question. Another local resident, Sabina Dekvert, welcomes the decision and says she's looking forward to seeing the parking spaces grow into gardens and vegetable patches. She got rid of her car five years ago. Public transport in central Berlin is so good, most people don't really need a car. Dekvert cycles to work, but only because she can cut through parks. She says too many of Berlin's existing bicycle lanes are in poor condition, suddenly disappear, or are obstructed by parked vehicles. Anja Uman agrees. I hold my breath constantly when I'm on my bike because I know that you need a lot of luck to avoid having an accident. Uman's twin sister, Sandra, ran out of luck last year. She was cycling to work when a concrete mixer hit her as it was turning right. Sandra was dragged by the wheels of the truck for 20 yards before the driver came to a stop. 
She later died in the hospital. Uman is finally back on her own bike more than half a year after her sister's death. She says the current cars versus bikes narrative in city politics and local media is doing nothing to improve road conditions. Road users in Berlin are aggressive. Drivers and cyclists alike are taking to the streets with an increasingly contrarian attitude. Why aren't we looking out for each other? Back in Kreuzberg, car owners who've managed to find one of the fast-diminishing parking spots are required to leave this street once a week so kindergartners can take it over. It's a taster of a city centre without cars, and parents watch on as kids swerve past each other on balance bikes, scooters and toy cars, learning defensive driving early. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Mississippi is home to many in the black farmer community, a group that is very small and aging across the U.S. And as farmers grow older, some are worried that their traditions might die with them. Danny MacArthur of the Gulf States Newsroom has the story of an effort to cultivate the next generation of black farmers. Alonzo Miller is showing me around his farm in Louisville, Mississippi. There are cows, vegetables, and fruit trees. This farm has pretty much everything that you need to provide food for yourself, um, water. But Miller's scaling back. He'll be 70 soon. And all that land is too much to handle. Miller is a fourth-generation farmer and a pastor in his church. His family taught him how to preserve the soil and provide the land whatever it needs to be self-sustaining. He wants to pass on this knowledge, but he worries that it will end with him. His children have other careers. And that... For us older farmers to not have our sons and daughters involved in that, it's a hurting thing. Black farmers in Mississippi, like Miller, are an aging demographic. Nationally, it's estimated that there are less than 50,000 left. And they have all of this ancestral knowledge that could help the next generation figure out how to keep growing as the climate changes. Miller is part of a local farming cooperative where he mentors other beginning farmers. Those kids that do want to learn, they still a part of your family. These older farmers, they're basically libraries, says Teresa Irvin Springs. Members of the cooperative taught her family the basics, like how to drive a tractor and install irrigation. They actually told us how to plant, how deep to plant, you know, um, everything. That was six years ago. And soon, Urban Springs says she noticed that she and her husband, Kevin, were among the youngest farmers in that cooperative. We thought to ourselves, if we're the youngest, you know, and we're in our 50s, well, we're going to be in trouble if we don't harness or get this knowledge so we can pass it on. So she and her husband are in the early stages of opening a training center that will pass on sustainable practices from older Black farmers to younger ones. They also mentor other new farmers like Markel Thompson. Meeting Kevin and Teresa kind of opened the door. Thompson oversees his family farm in McCool, Mississippi. He's 28 and grew up in Chicago. He came here to start farming last year after his grandfather passed. The Springs family showed him skills like how to set a planning schedule and manage a farm. And they connected him with mentors like Miller. Pastor Miller, for example. Every time I see him, I run up to him with a sense of urgency, passion, like, Pastor Miller, this was going on. Now, he's preparing his first pasture for planning. 
often he'll spend hours just exploring the land. It's partly fun, but also practical. I was back there searching for a well that's supposed to be just open somewhere. I need to find that before I fall in there. That would be terrible. <laughs> Thompson just bought the building that will be his future home. It sits on top of a hill from where he can look out over his new farm. For NPR News, I'm Danny McArthur in Tupelo, Mississippi. sure to listen to Weekend Edition tomorrow, we hear from a novelist whose most recent book, Mobility, weaves in issues of climate change, coming of age, and a woman's place in the world. Just turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play your member station. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Former President Donald Trump faces new charges in the Justice Department's investigation into his hiding top-secret documents. We're following the story here at 90.9 WBUR. Hear it in just about 15 minutes. If you live in or around Brockton, join WBUR journalists tomorrow morning for a community listening session. We want to hear what ideas and issues are on your mind. Again, that's coming up tomorrow morning at the Fuller Craft Museum. To find out more, visit wbur.org slash Brockton. In the forecast, sunshine and clouds both this afternoon and evening. Pretty steamy out there right now. Tonight, starlit skies, half moon out there. Should be warm, temperatures in the mid-70s. Then for tomorrow, pushing 90 degrees once again. Skies could start up uh, with sunshine before rain and thunderstorms roll in for the second half of the afternoon. Could make it to 90 degrees tomorrow. And then for Sunday, looking pretty gorgeous. Mostly sunny, breezy, temperatures in the upper 70s. 88 degrees now in Boston. This is 90. WBUR. It's 450. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org sponsorship. WBUR supporters include Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Members of the Writers Guild of America have been striking for nearly three months now. They're fighting for better pay and protections against artificial intelligence, among other demands. And Hollywood performers are now two weeks into a strike of their own. As Elias Robert Garova reports, with Hollywood mostly shut down, some local businesses are starting to fill the pinch. If you guys want fair residuals, say hell yeah! Hell yeah! It's a sweltering day outside the Warner Brothers studio lot in Burbank. Hundreds of striking writers and actors are picketing as passing cars honk in support. Bright pink billboards for the new Barbie movie are plastered all around. But even as summer blockbusters rake in hundreds of millions at the box office, economic anxiety is running high among striking performers like SAG-AFTRA member April Rock. 
I'm at the level of just trying not to think about it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, afraid to check the bank account. That financial uncertainty isn't just hitting actors and writers. Roxanne Schreiber is the co-owner of Kismet Collective Salon across the street. I mean, I lost my job in production 15 years ago when we had the, the last writer strike. But I mean, I, I know it, it affects the dry cleaners, the craft service people, the restaurants. Everybody around the studio suffers because it is a company town. It doesn't help that Schreiber and her partners opened the salon just weeks before the writer's strike started. Most of their clients work in the industry. It's huge because most people can't, you know, survive off unemployment. That's Johnny Agnew. He works in the entertainment industry as a unionized studio driver, getting equipment and actors where they need to go on set. You know, most of us live from paycheck to paycheck, to be honest with you. People are hurting. He hasn't had work since April when he says studios started getting worried about an imminent writer's strike. He also has a side business, renting set pieces and props for production out of his backyard. Our garage, you know, is right next to us, and it's full of, full of goodies. Old Santa Claus blow molds, gas station memorabilia, and plenty of vintage trailers. But those rentals are also at a halt. Agnew hopes studio executives get things settled soon so he can go back to work. They need to uh, pull their head out of their behinds and respect the working class, basically, comes down to. For its part, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers said in a statement after the sag after strike was announced that the union's choice, quote, will lead to financial hardship for countless thousands of people who depend on the industry. They say their offers to both the WGA and sag aftra include historic and generous pay increases, along with other protections and benefits. Entertainment, as we know, is one of the top industries in L.A. Todd Holmes is a professor of entertainment industry management at Cal State Northridge. He says it's hard to quantify the exact economic impact of these strikes in real time, but when the writer's strike began in May, he estimated it could cost the greater L.A. economy some $3 billion. We'd have to increase that number substantially since now we're factored in SAG. A lot of people are thinking that this goes on for another three months or so. Local politicians are taking note, too. At their last meeting, the L.A. County Board of Supervisors agreed to send a letter to the AMPTP urging them to return to the negotiating table. For NPR News, I'm Robert Garova in Los Angeles. As the writers and actors' strikes wear on, there's still some new scripted TV coming out of Hollywood, productions that wrapped before picketing began. The second season of This Fool is out today on Hulu. The story of cousins Julio and Luis gives a working-class perspective of life in the City of Angels. NPR's Gabriel J. Sanchez says it's not the glossy Los Angeles traditionally depicted on film and TV. We're like gritty. You know, there's former gang members in there that want to do better with their lives. And, um, you know, and then two cousins that are just like trying to just make it through life. Frankie Quinones plays Luis Hernandez, who is still adjusting to life outside of prison. The best way I could describe it, it kind of reminds me of like the movie Friday meets the show Atlanta from our lens, you know, and it's all based in South Central Los Angeles. In the first season, Luis reunites with his cousin Julio, played by Chris Estrada, and returns to his old barrio. He's working at a rehabilitation center, Hugs Not Thugs. And so I'm kind of like forced to go in there with him because, you know, in order to for my my aunt, his mother, my son, my tia is like, you can stay here, but you got to go to Hugs Not Thugs. In the second season, you'll see the tables kind of turn. In season two, the cousins from South Central link up with some of their former incarcerated colleagues to test their entrepreneurial dreams in the hood. Me and Luis, we're going to open up a cafe like Starbucks, but better. No, we're not going to have no bathroom code. <laughs> and it's going to be just like Hugs Not Thugs. We're going to hire and train ex-felons. And check this out. We're going to call it Mugs Not Thugs. Ooh, 
man, that's a clean-ass name, huh? The story just gets funnier and funnier to me. I move into my own place, which is the garage at the, the neighbor's house next door to my tia's house. And so in my head, I'm on the up and up, but now we're, and then Julio moves in with me. So I'm kind of like, oh, we're getting our stuff together, but we're really just kind of still losers, you know? I mean, we are still losers. We're living in a garage and like, <laughs> but you know, trying to make the best of it. Quinones credits the combination of comedy and real life drama to Chris Estrada. He plays Luis's cousin, Julio, and also created this fool. Quinones says he relates to the way the show depicts real-life experiences of growing up in a neighborhood, reaching for the working class. And we all have relatives or a lot of us, you know, that grew up like that, like even myself, you know, it's a bunch of people have lived at my grandma and grandpa's and slept in the garage and, you know, in the living room and, and stuff like that. So, and a lot of people can relate to that, especially that the people that kind of grew up in the communities like we grew up in. And for some members of the Quinones family, the incarceration storyline is familiar, too. I had uncles, cousins, you know, kind of in and out of a, a prison and stuff like that. My tío Nano, my tío Pava, always in and out of jail. Quinones drew inspirations from throughout his life to develop the heavily tattooed Luis Hernandez character. But it's not the first time he's tried on a role like this for size. Hey, we all know there's a lot of cholo workout videos out there, but this one is going to have you like... Damn, homie, that's what's up, you know? This is Cholo Fit with Creeper. That's Creeper, a character Quinones created that went viral in 2017. Dressed in his calf-high socks, cut-off sweatpants, and tank top, the spin class instructor in Cholo athletic wear pedals a lowrider bike in his outdoor spin class. And then you get the resistance right there, you see? You already feel it. You feel it down here in your gluteus muscle mentals or whatever, and down through the calf. So, uh, yeah, I would say with character Luis, he definitely like at least like I would say like 25, 30 percent uh, Creeper, you know, and then, and then the rest is uh, Luis. But yeah, man, Creeper uh, from Cholo Fit, you know, that's just an extension of my father. My dad's an old school Cholo. He always had a lowrider, always Chuck Taylor's Dickies, but one of the most positive people I know. And I wasn't trying to look for an angle or nothing. I was just trying to, you know, do do voices that I knew. And uh I mean, obviously, there's a little bit of Creeper and Frankie, too, just in my daily life, so he's always with me. That was actor and comedian Frankie Quinones. We caught up with Quinones earlier this month, just before the Screen Actors Guild began their strike against the studios. Gabriel J. Sanchez, NPR News. Thanks for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox are working late tonight. They've got a 10-15 start time out in San Francisco as they start up a three-game series with the Giants. Cutter Crawford pitches against Logan Webb. The Sox don't return to Fenway until a week from today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The heat wave continues across the U.S. In the Florida Keys, abnormally hot ocean temperatures are leading to a massive die-off of coral reefs. We think that the temperature stress was so extreme, it not only did the corals bleach, but it killed the tissue. In these cases, they're actually dying from the heat stress itself. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. More on the efforts to save endangered species of coral coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Former President Donald Trump faces new charges in the case accusing him of hiding classified documents. And Medicare was supposed to cover the entire cost of Thomas Green's surgery, but the anesthesia provider failed to file claims in a timely manner and billed the patient instead. If the provider did not submit the bill in a timely manner, why should we be responsible for payment? Our July Bill of the Month coming up. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. For the first time in his presidency, Joe Biden visited Maine today using the trip to a textile factory to sign an executive order to boost U.S. manufacturing. In the visit, Biden boasted about cooling inflation. Inflation is now at the lowest point it's been in over two years. In fact, we have the lowest rate of inflation among the world's major economies. A measurement followed closely by the Federal Reserve shows consumer prices rose last month at their slowest pace in more than two years. Under the executive order dubbed Invent It Here, Make It Here, domestic manufacturers will have easier access to newly authorized federal dollars. Federal agencies research and fund development to encourage innovation. This executive order dictates that those agencies have to prioritize domestic manufacturing when it comes time to bring those inventions to market. They can't go abroad. They have to look here. Who can do it here? The main trip was another stop in the president's economic agenda tour. Like much of the Northeast and other parts of the nation, New York City is in the midst of a heat wave. NPR's Jasmine Gardst has details on how the city is handling it. A heat advisory is in effect in New York, with the heat index rising to above 105 degrees. New York City Mayor Eric Adams said this first heat wave of the summer was a, quote, climate disaster. He's reminding New Yorkers of their labor rights in this kind of weather. In New York City, your employer must provide water, rest and shade if you are working in extreme heat. You can call 911 immediately if you see someone you know that's confused or disoriented. The city has announced 500 cooling centers and is keeping its swimming pools open late. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. In March, a series of bank failures rattled financial markets and raised concerns about the banking system. 
Steve Beckner reports the Fed is satisfied with how the system responded. At a meeting of the Financial Stability Oversight Council, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, and other top financial regulators discussed potential threats to the financial system. In March, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and others forced the central bank to step in with an emergency liquidity plan. But the Fed's latest stress tests of the largest banks found them in good shape. They are, quote, well positioned to weather significant downside scenarios and to continue to lend to households and businesses even during a severe recession, according to the report. For NPR News, I'm Steve Beckner. Wall Street, the Dow gained 176 points. The Nasdaq was up 266. The S&P 500 gained 44. This is NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A heat advisory remains in effect for most of the state through tomorrow night. An air quality advisory is posted until 11 tonight for Bristol and Plymouth counties, along with the Cape and Islands. Today's high temperatures in eastern Mass did not hit 90. That means the Boston area is not in an official heat wave. That's three consecutive days of 90-degree-plus temperatures. National Weather Service meteorologist Kyle Peterson says the hot weather will persist through tomorrow. We're still expecting um, temperatures tomorrow to be into the 90s for most of the area maybe upper 80s for areas closer to uh, the seas, and then maybe further north, upper 80s as well. Temperatures today did hit the low 90s in parts of western Mass. That made it tough for Mike Gonzalves, who was working on a water main in Holyoke. He has to wear long pants for his job, but says the hot weather is nothing new for him. Year after year, you get used to it, <laughs> but you just got to tough it out. But drink a lot of water, that's the key. Cooler temperatures are forecast to arrive on Sunday. Beacon Hill negotiators said today they're a step closer to finalizing a new state budget. The final budget is a month overdue. The conference committee has been working to reconcile differences between versions passed in the House and Senate. The state is now operating on a temporary spending plan. The B branch of the MBTA's Green Line will reopen tomorrow as scheduled. The T announced today that crews have replaced more than 2,800 feet of track since the line closed. That was on July 17th. The project started earlier than planned after a trolley derailed last month at Packard's Corner. So the heat presses on for another full day. The heat advisory stays in effect until 8 tomorrow night. Uh, as we heard, keep hydrated and stay out of the sun if you can. Tonight, generally clear and warm in the mid-70s. Tomorrow could hit 90. Sunshine early. The chance of thunderstorms in the afternoon, though. Sunny should be lovely. Sunny and dry and cooler. 87 degrees in Boston at 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Policy Genius, committed to simplifying the process of getting life insurance by providing quotes from multiple companies side by side, including options that don't require a medical exam. Learn more at policygenius.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In a moment, we'll take a look at Florida. As the ocean heats up there, scientists are working to protect coral, dying from the high temperatures and endangering the ecosystem around it. Also in Florida, federal prosecutors have added new felony charges against former President Donald Trump and his employees. In Washington, a federal grand jury is looking into his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. 
Commission. And in Georgia, the Fulton County District Attorney is investigating Trump's campaign to pressure election officials. It's all making it quite hard to keep track of the legal developments involving the former president. But luckily, we've got NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson on the line, and she is tracking all of these cases. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Juana. Carrie, you are keeping busy. A lot to cover, but let's start in the state of Florida. Donald Trump now faces a total of 40 criminal charges there. What's the latest? Last night, federal prosecutors unveiled a superseding indictment in South Florida. They added three new charges against Donald Trump related his hoarding of classified documents. One charge is for his alleged refusal to return a military plan about Iran that Trump showed to aides at his New Jersey golf club, even though he said it was a secret. And there are two new charges of obstruction for allegedly cooking up a plan to destroy surveillance footage of boxes being moved at his Florida resort Mar-a-Lago. Trump's campaign says this is part of a, quote, desperate attempt by the Justice Department to harass him and the people around him. And there's another employee in Florida at Mar-a-Lago, Carlos de Oliveira, who was added to the indictment. He's due for a court appearance in Miami on Monday. And Carrie, former President Trump had already been charged with federal crimes related to the classified documents about a month ago. Why are we seeing even more charges right now? Not unusual, really, in a big criminal case. It could be an effort to fortify or strengthen the case that already existed. It could be a result of some trouble the FBI had getting into the phone of Trump's valet, Walt Nauta, another co-defendant in this case. But whatever the reason, this is pretty tough news for Donald Trump. DOJ has a lot of communications about the alleged obstruction, which came after a subpoena for the video footage. And that's going to be hard evidence for Trump's lawyers to try to explain to a jury next year. Mm. And separately, there is a grand jury here in Washington, D.C. that's exploring the January 6th riot that grand jury met this week. Those proceedings are secret, of course, but what have you been able to tease out about what's going on there? Yeah, there's no sign of that Washington grand jury at the courthouse today. I was at the courthouse most of the day. They typically meet on Tuesdays and Thursdays. They did seem to put in a full day of work yesterday, though. And at the same time across town yesterday, Trump's lawyers were meeting with the special counsel, Jack Smith. Trump called it a productive meeting, said he did nothing wrong, and he also said he relied on his attorneys, signaling a possible defense in any January 6 charges that are eventually filed against him. Remember, Trump got a target letter nearly two weeks ago, so those charges could come at almost any time now. Former President Trump is, of course, running for re-election to the White House again in 2024. How might these legal troubles factor into his campaign? Yeah, Donald Trump made a bit of news on that today in an interview with the radio host John Fredericks. Here's what they had to say. If going forward, right, you get these indictments, there ends up, you got a jury in D.C., you get convicted and sentenced. Does that stop your campaign for president if you're sentenced? Uh, not, not at all. You know, Trump went on to say there's nothing in the Constitution that, to say that it could stop his campaign. And to be clear, he has not yet faced any charges in D.C., let alone a trial date or a sentencing. But Trump is facing trial in New York uh, in March 2024 on alleged hush money payments and in Florida in May 2024. So it's not clear there's room for another trial later that year. Right. So Trump is facing legal trouble in New York, in Florida, possibly soon in Washington, D.C. But that is still not the end of the list. Carrie, tell us what's happening in Georgia. 
Yeah, and Fulton County barricades went up around the courthouse this week. The district attorney signaled she expects a grand jury there to take action sometime in August. They've been investigating efforts by Trump and others to overturn the results of the last election, including a pressure campaign on the Georgia Secretary of State. Just one more thing to watch in this long, hot summer of legal trouble for the former president and current Republican frontrunner for the 2024 nomination for the White House. NPR's Carrie Johnson, thank you. My pleasure. In the Florida Keys, a rescue operation is underway to save endangered species of coral. Abnormally hot ocean temperatures in the Keys related to climate change have led to bleaching and a massive die-off. Marine scientists are scrambling to preserve samples of rare species of coral before, possibly, they're gone forever. And Piers Greg Allen reports from Miami. An ocean buoy operated by NOAA this week in the Florida Keys recorded a water temperature over 101 degrees Fahrenheit, among the highest reading ever recorded. That's the temperature of many hot tubs, and has led to severe problems for Florida's already struggling coral reefs. Fenora Montoya Maya with the Coral Restoration Foundation saw it firsthand on a dive to Sombrero Reef. When we jumped in the water, we found a lot of these corals that they were white and brown, mostly white. Coral bleaching isn't unusual. It's often a temporary condition that happens in hot summer months and corals soon recover. But Montoya says when he examined the corals up close on Sombrero Reef, he was shocked. All of them were dead. Which means that the coral have pretty much burned to death. When corals bleach, they expel the algae that through photosynthesis provide their primary food source. If bleaching goes on long enough, corals can starve to death. Jennifer Moore with the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary says that didn't happen in this case. The corals died quickly. We think that the temperature stress was so extreme, it not only did the corals bleach, but it killed the tissue. It's not that they starved to death after a week or two or three. Um, In these cases, that they're actually dying from the heat stress itself. Corals form the basis for reefs that underpin a diverse aquatic ecosystem. Reefs provide storm protection and economic benefits, adding billions of dollars to Florida's tourist economy. This bleaching and mortality event comes as a blow to scientists who've been preserving and restoring Florida's coral reefs. Working with NOAA, conservation and research groups have been raising and outplanning endangered coral species, part of a project called Mission Iconic Reefs. Now those groups are rushing to preserve their underwater nurseries, moving them in some cases onto land, or to deeper, cooler water. And Moore says there's an urgent new mission underway, taking samples of two important species, elkhorn and staghorn corals. On the Florida reef track, there are around 150 unique individuals of elkhorn coral still alive, and about 300 of staghorn corals still alive. That's less than 1% of their former abundance. Those fragments will be warehoused on land, part of a Noah's Ark of coral species that research groups have created as a hedge against what appears to be an increasingly bleak future. Moore says it's uncertain what all this means for the Mission Iconic Reefs project. The first step is understanding what's happening on the reefs. The death of all of the coral on Sombrero Reef is a severe setback to the restoration effort. In recent years, Coral Restoration Foundation and other groups significantly expanded the coral cover there. But Fenor Montoya says this crisis is a reminder that for Florida's coral reefs, time may be running out. Climate change is the biggest threat to our coral reef ecosystems across the world. There is no doubt about it. And if we don't do any action to mitigate the effects of climate change, 
it will be will the first one to go. Unfortunately for Florida's coral reefs, things may get worse before they get better. The hottest ocean temperatures here typically happen in August. And NOAA is predicting hot ocean temperatures in the Keys are expected to continue through October. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. In Central America's highlands lies a beautiful lake that was created thanks to an extreme natural event. The area draws in over 300,000 tourists every year. NPR's Lily Quiros is now one of them as she traveled to the lake in western Guatemala. Lake Atitlan is more than meets the eye. It wasn't always a lake with teal-colored water. To better understand what I mean, we've got to go underwater. The water is cool, but I can feel warm spots, too. What I'm feeling is a natural hot spring. That's because about 84,000 years ago, a volcano stood here. After Los Chocoyos erupted, it collapsed inward, and it formed what's called a caldera, or a volcanic crater. As I surface above the water, I can see the volcanoes that are still standing, San Pedro, Tolimán, and Atitlán, and the 12 towns surrounding the lake. They're also a part of the draw to the area. In one of the towns, Panajachel, I meet with a local Maya tour guide. Hey, hola, soy David Alinan. There are three Maya groups that continue to influence the culture around the lake. Cachiquel, Quiche, y Sotogil. Surrounding towns have vibrant street decorations and shops that display colorful tejidos mayas, or Maya textiles. Hola. Hola. Gelenda Rosales has run her shop in Panajachel for over 15 years. She's still waiting for tourism to reach its pre-pandemic levels. We all rely on tourism here. If there's no tourism, then our sales are low. It is our job. It's what takes care of our families. Several locals feel the same. Tourism contributes 80% to the economy of any community here today. But my tour guide, David Alinan, says this comes with pros and cons. The positive side is the economic growth for several families, new access to technology and education. The negative part is the loss of identity. He says many people born here in the 90s don't know their native Mayan language, instead only speaking Spanish and a few other international languages. Still, Rosales encourages people from around the world to visit. There's a lot of calm and peace here. It's an alluring draw to this area. This country is known as the eternal spring country. With brief showers some evenings, the hot sun begins to set behind the volcanoes that surround the lake. Lili Quiroz, Panajachel, Guatemala. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, a traffic alert now. Anyone using Route 95 to get to New Hampshire is being warned about a major backup in Danvers. A van rolled over on the northbound side. State police say there are serious injuries in the crash. And they're warning of long backups for the rest of the evening commute and suggest avoiding Route 95 altogether in Danvers because there's a major backup on the southbound side as people slow down to take a look. It's 518. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. And Merrimack College with flexible online and on campus programs built for the working educator to balance life, school, and career. 
online.merrimack.edu. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. On Wall Street, stocks were back on the plus side today. The Dow rose a half percent. S&P rose a full percent to not just third straight week of gains. The Nasdaq picked up nearly two percent today. Ahead tonight, a July night without a thunderstorm in sight. WBR meteorologist Danielle Noyes has the forecast. A storm-free, hot summer evening out there. Temperatures slowly fall into the 70s overnight tonight. Heat advisory remains in effect for tomorrow. High of 90, heat index low to mid-90s. And it'll be a bit of an unsettled day. Chance of a shower storm in the morning, then scattered afternoon and evening storms. Some could contain damaging gusts, localized flooding, hail, and frequent lightning. So monitor for warnings. It'll be a totally different feel on Sunday, though. Partly cloudy, less humid, high 75 to 80 with a low risk of an isolated shower. And right now in the Boston area, 88 degrees at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It is time for our July Bill of the Month. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is senior contributing editor with our partner, KFF Health News. Hi there. Welcome back. Hi. Good to be here again. Who are we meeting today? Today we meet Blue Eyes or Green from southeastern Pennsylvania. She got in touch with us about a bill her husband received. It's a case where a company tried to get Blue Eyeser and Thomas to pay for anesthesia care when Medicare said the Greens did not owe anything. Blue Eyeser spoke to us on behalf of her husband, who's recovering from a bunch of other health problems. Okay, so let's get some details now. Reporter Sojourner Ahebe has this couple's story. Let's listen. Blue Eyeser and Thomas Green are both in their early 70s. For years, the couple got their health care through Medicare. No problems. Then, in 2021, Thomas went in for surgery to relieve pain in his legs related to his diabetes. A year later, they got a bill from a collection agency saying they owed about $3,000 to the anesthesia staffing company. My initial response was, this is impossible. So something's wrong. It was a shock because the Greens have had the same insurance for years. Blue Eyser says it was the first time her husband was asked to pay out of pocket. A spokesperson for North American Partners in Anesthesia declined to be interviewed on the record. In an email to the patient, the provider says it sent a bill to Medicare back in 2021, shortly after Thomas Green's surgery. They said the claim was rejected later the same year. But Green's Medicare account shows the company filed claims in late 2022, about 17 months after the surgery. Healthcare providers are required to submit claims to Medicare within 12 months. Medicare rejected the bill. If Medicare is saying that the provider 
did not submit the bill in a timely manner or whatever that was, why should we be responsible for payment? But two debt collectors representing the anesthesia company did demand payment from the Greens, and the couple got worried about their credit. Thomas had been struggling with his health, so for months, Bluizer made calls to the collection agencies and the anesthesia provider on her husband's behalf to try and resolve the bill. The collection notices kept coming, so she got help from a Pennsylvania advocacy group that assists seniors. Earlier this year, that group contacted the anesthesia company and explained that according to federal law, when Medicare denies a claim, a provider is not allowed to bill the patient. Then the company told a patient advocate who was helping Bluizer that it would stop billing them. All notices and that sort of thing has ceased. But Bluizer still feels some unease. We have not received a letter from the provider's billing department stating that we have a zero balance with them. And to me, that is what we really need for our records. And she has a lot on her plate. Her husband has been in and out of hospitals while she's been dealing with his medical bills. Bluizer can't imagine if he had to navigate the system all on his own. You know, what would have happened? It wasn't a pleasant place to be. Luckily, Bluizer was in a position to sort things out. But not everyone has that. I'm Sojourner Ahebe. Well, we have been listening to this report with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal on the line with me. And Dr. Rosenthal, we can I can hear the frustration and confusion in this poor couple's saga. Yeah. Is, is this over for them? It sounds like not quite. Well, it should be. But, you know, it's understandable that the Greens continue to be worried. I mean, when a barrage of collection letters show up, many people get intimidated. They get scared and some just pay the bill. But, you know, if Medicare says you, the patient, don't owe anything, my advice is don't write the check. Medicare is right. Medicare is right. Okay. Any other advice for people listening in? Well, I do think it's important to read your mail. I mean, many people see this barrage of uh, things from medical providers and ignore them. The family in this case said they may have gotten some bills early on. But they discarded them without opening because they were so used to having all their bills just covered by insurance. So I know it's a pain, but I advise people to keep copies of everything or review your documents online. And even if the insurance statement says, you know, that familiar phrase, this is not a bill, pay attention. It's your best chance to catch a mistake and prevent inaccurate debt from being sent to collections. Finally, don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid to ask questions and question unusual charges. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, thanks as always. Thank you. And if you have a confusing or outrageous medical bill that you want us to review, please go to NPR's Shots blog and tell us about it. Seven major automakers are banding together to launch a new electric vehicle charging network in North America. They want to build 30,000 chargers. That would be even bigger than Tesla's supercharger network. NPR's Camila Dominoski reports. 
As EV sales are on the rise, there is a huge push to build more chargers in the U.S. But Sam Abul Samit with the consultancy Guidehouse Insights says there's another problem. It's not just a matter of not enough chargers. The chargers that were there often didn't work. Or they just kind of work, like this charger I was at last month. Yeah, it's charging slowly. There was a warning that it was currently charging at a reduced rate while it doesn't update. Charging can also be confusing with hard-to-navigate apps. All of this can make drivers reluctant to buy EVs. So these seven companies, BMW, GM, Honda, Hyundai, Kia, Mercedes-Benz, and Stellantis, formerly known as Fiat Chrysler, they've decided to create a joint venture to build chargers themselves under one network so they can make sure they're fast, reliable, easy to use, make sure they're good chargers, great chargers, maybe even Super chargers. Tesla's supercharger network, which Tesla builds, owns, and maintains, is extensive and reliable. It's a huge selling point for that company, and it's hard to overstate how it's shaken up the industry. Other companies have started joining the Tesla network, and now, with this alliance, trying to replicate it too. Abuel Samad says the stakes are high for automakers. They are making an enormous investment in electrification. They have come to the realization that if they don't do this and they don't make it work, then that money is going to be wasted. That's going to be lost. The new network plans to draw on federal money to help fund chargers and will be open to all drivers. It doesn't have a name yet, but aims to open the first chargers next summer. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Gene X. Wong uses the Twitter handle at X, so he's wondering how Twitter, which is now calling itself X, could commandeer his handle without informing him or compensating him. That story is coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR. It's been pretty hot today. The National Weather Service says it did not reach 90 in Greater Boston, so there won't be a heat wave after all. It is 88 degrees now, should dip to the mid-70s tonight. Tomorrow, waking up to sunshine, then heavy rains and gusty winds, making intermittent visits by the afternoon, could reach 90 tomorrow. And then Sunday should be a dandy summer day. No rain in the forecast, just a lot of sunshine. Highs about 80 degrees. Listen to WBUR on your summer travels. Just tap to listen live and catch up on what's happening in the news. Download or update the WBUR app now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we gave the Southwest some advice in dealing with the record heat. Maybe, Phoenix, you should not have named your city after a bird most famous for bursting into flames. I'm Karen Chi, in for Peter Sagal. Join us for more chit-chat about the weather with our guest, actor-director Randall Park, on this week's news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. 
The National Weather Service says nearly 200 million people are under a heat advisory or flood warning. That's about 60 percent of the U.S. population. Dangerous heat is already engulfing much of the eastern half of the country as extreme temperatures spread from the Midwest into the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. That's where some residents will experience the hottest temperatures of the year. In Phoenix, Arizona, temperatures have soared above 110 degrees every day this month, and homeless people are among those most likely to die. Amanda Wynn with a local community organization says people living on the streets need help to stay cool. Ice and water, as much as like the food helps and the clothes help and all of that, the only way to stay a little bit cool is by having something to keep your food cool, something to keep your water cool. The temperatures are just crazy. Phoenix had 425 heat-related deaths last year during the region's hottest summer. Most of those deaths occurred outside. A hearing to determine the fate of the teen who shot and killed four classmates in Michigan in 2021 is being adjourned until next week, as Quinn Kleinfelter of member station WDET reports. Prosecutors used video and photos from the scene of the shooting to illustrate the calculation they say Crumbly used to kill students at Oxford High School and traumatize a community. Assistant Principal Christy Gibson Marshall testified that she talked to Crumbly while he was in the midst of the massacre, then became covered in blood as she tried to help a student he'd just shot, Tate Muir. It took me a long time, months, probably almost a year to get the taste of Tate's blood out of my mouth. The defense countered that adolescent brains are still developing well into their 20s and have the capacity to be rehabilitated. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit. Stocks finished higher to end the trading week on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A heat advisory remains in effect for most of the state through tomorrow night. But the National Weather Service says it looks as if we will not hit an official heat wave in the Boston area. That is three straight days of 90 degrees or higher temperatures. Temperatures in Boston did not reach 90 today. We could make it to 90 tomorrow, but it should also feel a lot hotter. Residents near the Belle Isle Salt Marsh in Boston Harbor say they're concerned about flooding and the effect of it on their homes. WBR's Paula Mata reports on the findings of a new survey that's part of a project designed to protect the marsh and nearby communities. The survey included people near Belle Isle who are not often in discussions about climate change. Most are Latinx renters and live in Revere, East Boston, and Winthrop. Jocelyn Alemu is a researcher with Northeastern University and the Nature Conservancy. He says a large majority of those surveyed feel a strong connection with the marsh, but are unaware it can help protect against flooding. And floods are a big concern. Most people felt that their families would be unable to cope with major flooding without government intervention. They feel that they don't have the means to do that themselves. Belle Isle is the largest remaining salt marsh in Boston Harbor. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. The National Weather Service confirms a tornado touchdown in Dublin, New Hampshire yesterday. The Weather Service says the damage is consistent with an EF-1 tornado with winds as high as 95 miles an hour. Yesterday afternoon, a trained weather spotter reported a funnel cloud reaching the ground right near Keene State College. It caused extensive tree damage. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Coolidge Corner. Shop, dine, and enjoy the ambiance of Coolidge Corner in the heart of Brookline at the Sidewalk Shopping Event this Saturday and Sunday, 11 to 4. 
Hazy sunshine today leads to a clear night tonight, falling only to the mid-70s. Tomorrow, clouds should collect during the day, thunderstorms spending part of the afternoon anyway. Highs could come close to 90. Sunday, sunny and more comfortable, may not even break 80 degrees. 88 now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations, including associations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It is hot out. It has been hot for a while. All this month, we have been reporting about heat across the country. And not just the record-breaking temperatures, but record-breaking streaks of high temperatures. Now, some researchers argue that we should not call this a heat wave anymore. One of those researchers is Ashley Ward, director of Duke's Heat Policy Innovation Hub and Ashley Ward. Um, I believe we've reached you in Durham, North Carolina, where Duke is. How is it hot there today? It's a hot day today, yes, in Durham. Yeah. But it's also a July day today in Durham. So, Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's summer. We expect it to be hot. Um, why doesn't the term heat wave make sense for what we're all currently sweating through? So, you know, the, the term heat wave, typically we would use that when we're talking about short-term periods of extreme heat, three to five days oh. typically. But we're approaching, particularly in the Southwest, you know, 27, 28 days in the triple digits um, and also accompanying at times persistently high overnight temperatures in that same region, which is really the most dangerous cocktail. Your point is it's, it's not a heat wave if the wave just keeps coming and coming and coming. If it never ends. Yeah. What do you propose we call it when we have a straight month of triple digit temperatures? I just think it is an extreme heat season. Mm -hmm. This is not a short term event and so an acute exposure of something. This is a new way of being. This is a new reality. I want to follow on something you, you touched on, the focus not just on record highs, which make the headlines, but on record high lows, meaning if the low temperature in a given 24-hour period never falls out of the 90s or out of the 80s, which, which we have watched, it's been the case in Phoenix for weeks now, nothing ever cools down. Pools don't cool down, rivers, lakes. Um, what are the implications of that? That's such a great question. And when we look at health impacts associated with heat exposure, some of the highest associations with adverse health outcomes come with persistently high overnight temperatures when the body does not have uh, the period of rest or recovery that is required. It also means that people who can't afford air condition or afford to be able to run it sufficiently, this taxes those resources even more so when there's no period overnight when you can open your windows and, you know, cool down the house from the day, which has, you know, been how people have traditionally dealt with heat in certain parts of the country. Yeah. You know, it gets very hot during the day, but at night there's a reprieve. And we count on that reprieve for our own 
you know, health and well-being, but also to, to, to help cool our homes and, their, and the living spaces. Yeah. If we are now living in an era where this is unlikely to be the last heat season, what's the most urgent change we need to make as a society? I think there are lots of things that individuals can do and have been doing, and it's time for the federal government, for Congress to step in. And what that looks like is fully funding the National Integrated Heat Health Information System, which provides coordination efforts across federal agencies and down to state and local agencies. We also need to think about a national cooling standard like we have for heat. Uh, Your landlord must heat your home, but doesn't have to cool your home. The lack of a national cooling standard means that we don't necessarily have cooling in all of our schools, prisons, public housing and affordable housing, nursing homes, or long-term care homes. So we need a national cooling standard. You know, as you know, it often takes a crisis, unfortunately, to move the needle on policy. So we get uh, changes in terms of hurricane response when there's been a really awful hurricane, and we can all see those pictures uh, and understand the suffering that it's caused and what we need to do to prevent something like that from happening again. Do you fear it will take a crisis in terms of illness, death resulting from this heat season before we see policy change? Certainly. I think that is the case. I think that's a fair statement to make. And um, I can only hope that this is extreme enough. Um, This has been a horrific heat season. And we have every indication to believe that we will likely face other heat seasons equally as bad or worse. Ashley Ward is director of Duke University's Heat Policy Innovation Hub. Thank you. Thank you so much. The letter X marks the spot, crosses out mistakes. Well, X is now also the social media site formerly known as Twitter. CEO Elon Musk announced the rebrand earlier this week, and the transition has been messy, to say the least. The company didn't get permission to remove the Twitter sign from its San Francisco headquarters, nor did it secure the intellectual property rights to the letter X. And when at Twitter officially changed its handle to at X, the move left photographer Gene X Wong without a username because at X used to be his. We wanted to get his thoughts on this whole series of events, so he joins me now. Gene, welcome. Hey, how's it going? It is going well. So, Gene, just for starters, how long did you have this Twitter handle? Uh, so I've had it since 2007, um, which I kind of forgot because it's been such a long time. <laughs> Okay, so 2007, that is a long time. How did you learn that this handle, at X, was no longer yours? Uh, I received an email from support at twitter.com. So, you know, it said, hey, this is property of X, so we're going to transition you to a different account. We'll keep your history for being such a loyal, you know, user and some merch and a tour of the offices and meeting with some of the management as, you know, kind of compensation for taking the handle back. Okay, and given all the news about Twitter's sort of rebrand, was this something you were expecting, or what did you think when that email showed up in your inbox? So sort of I was expecting it because, you know, Elon had been kind of tweeting about X previously. So I kind of knew, you know, I had an, an inkling that this is going to be happening. I didn't really know when. So when I, I was actually in Canada at Yegpin, a pinball tournament. So when I was traveling back to San Francisco, it all kind of happened right during that time. So I was kind of, you know, off the grid while I was in the air. So when I landed and fired up my phone, I just got all these messages and I was like, what is going on? And and the account hadn't, nothing had changed with the account then because that happened happened later on when it actually got taken back from Twitter. So it was, you know, I I suspected it might be something that could happen. So it wasn't like 100% like out of the blue. 
You mentioned earlier that the company offered you merch to meet with some folks from the staff and a tour of headquarters. Is that something you're planning on taking them up on? Well, I had visited Twitter's offices before. I had friends that worked there. so And I know it hasn't really changed too much. But then I, I thought it might be funny to get some merch. But then some people are like, oh, don't take that because then that'll make it like a transaction or something. So I, I don't really care about that too much. But they are taking the sign down, which they've been doing, like you uh, mentioned earlier. And I asked if I could have the blue bird that's on the sign. But they said that, that that's not an option. So <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately... I mean, looking ahead, what about your future on X? Do you think you're going to stay on the platform or look somewhere else? Uh, I've been checking out other options like Threads and Mastodon and Blue Sky because I think one of the things you do or I do is when there's a new one, you kind of hop on there so you can get your username, right? So, And I usually use G-E-N-E-X, GeneX as like my handle on things. So I did pop onto all of those to try to kind of claim my account on those. And I've been poking around and I've been finding Mastodon a little bit more useful lately. But I'm still on Twitter for now, but it's changed a lot. So we'll see how much longer I'm on there. That's Gene X Wong, who used to own the at X handle. Gene, thank you. Thanks, Juana. And we should note that NPR reached out to X for comment, but has not received a response from the company at this time. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. There's been an alarming rise in robberies of U.S. Postal Service letter carriers over the past couple of years. The Postal Service reported 412 letter carriers were robbed last year. And in just the first half of fiscal year 2023, 305 incidents have already been reported. That has now prompted the federal agency to come up with what it is calling Project Safe Delivery. The focus is on keeping mail carriers safe and making changes to mailboxes and other postal equipment. Chuck Kornbach of member station WUWM in Milwaukee reports. Milwaukee is one of the cities that's been a trouble spot. Just weeks ago, the Justice Department announced indictments against five Milwaukee men accused of the armed robbery of postal carriers. And there was more tragic news last December when Milwaukee letter carrier Andre Cross was shot to death while delivering mail. During a vigil, Cross's former supervisor, Tracy Merrill, remembered the man she called Dre, saying she appreciated his supportive spirit. We all got a job to do, but we still have to have an open heart. And Dre was that open spirit. He encouraged me when I was down. He encouraged me. Always encouraging words. Federal prosecutors eventually charged two men with murder and two alleged accomplices with lying to investigators. The criminal complaint suggests some of the defendants may have been receiving illegal drugs in the mail. The matter has not yet gone to trial. The president of the letter carrier's local union, Dave Skoranek, says many of his 1,900 members walk a route and interact with the public. And he says those troubling incidents do have an impact. I know people are reluctant, especially if there's something major like the murder of Brother Cross where people are reluctant to go into the area, but it is our job, it is our duty to serve the American public, and we'll continue to do it. The Postal Inspection Service investigates crimes against letter carriers. In an effort to track down people who are targeting them, it runs appeals seeking the public's help online. It's Wanted Wednesday. This week's suspects are wanted for the robbery of a letter carrier in Milburn, New Jersey, on May 13th. 
the inspection service offers rewards of up to $50,000 for information leading to arrests and convictions. Project Safe Delivery includes more extensive steps. They're installing thousands of high-security collection boxes to make it harder for thieves to steal mail. They'll also replace about 49,000 so-called arrow keys that are used to open blue mailboxes with electronic locks. It's those keys criminals want to steal checks and other items. The Postal Service hopes the measures will spur more people to apply to become mail carriers. There are more than 630,000 postal workers in the United States. About one-third of those deliver the mail. At a recent job fair at the Milwaukee Hampton Branch Post Office, Manager Lydia Caldwell says any new hires will find she's dedicated to employee safety. We give safety talks every day. We're consistently making our carriers aware. Always be aware of your surroundings. We go out on the street and we spot check to make sure that our carriers are safe. The Postal Inspection Service urges customers to get involved in neighborhood watch groups to spread awareness about threats to people delivering the mail. Also, to keep an eye out for their carrier, and if they see something suspicious, call 911. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Pernbach in Milwaukee. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, innovations in air conditioning technology coming up in the next half hour on WBUR. That's coming up in just about 30 minutes. This is 90.9 WBUR. There's been a serious crash on Route 95 northbound in Danvers that's snarling the evening commute. There's about a three-mile back up there northbound. State police say a van rolled over on the northbound side and they uh, suggest avoiding 495, uh, avoiding 95 in Danvers altogether. There is a one-mile backup roughly southbound as people slow down. It's 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly beginning August 4th. FranklinParkZoo.org and Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton, now enrolling for the upcoming year, a nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com. If you live in or around Brockton, join WBR Journalist tomorrow for a community listening session. We want to hear what ideas and issues are on your mind. Again, that's coming up tomorrow in the morning at the Fuller Craft Museum. To find out more, visit WBUR.org slash Brockton. 89 degrees now in the Boston area at 549. It's time for another Beach Book recommendation from WBUR. Here's Hannah Ali. When We Were Mothers, by Massachusetts-based author Nikki Cadillac, is a science fiction tale about a dystopian future. Natural birth has been outlawed, and all children must be born in laboratories. Meanwhile, a secret society of women wants to bring the choice to bear children back into the world. But when one member dies during childbirth, the rebel group must find a way to conceal the crime. In When We Were Mothers, Cadillac uses science fiction as a tool to explore real-world dynamics. If you're looking for a tearjerker and a page-turner, When We Were Mothers might be for you. To get weekly book recommendations just like this, send straight to your inbox. Subscribe to our free newsletter at wbur.org slash beachbooks.
On a Friday. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. With more than 200 careers under her belt, Barbie's resume can tell us a lot about the journey of women in the American workforce. Waylon Wong and Adrian Ma from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, give us a crash course in labor economics, Barbie style. For today's lesson in Barbie labor economics, we had one particular teacher in mind. My name is Barb Flowers. I was a coordinator in economic education at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. So your name is Barb. Have you ever gone by Barbie? I've avoided that my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll stick to calling her Barb. Uh, So Barb, who is now retired, spent her career in economics education. And about 10 years ago, she developed a curriculum for high school students that put a Barbie spin on women's labor history. Her lesson plan introduced some basic vocab terms like labor force and labor force participation. And then comes the fun part of Barb's lesson plan. And so, Adrian, you have not seen this before, so this will be fresh to you. No, yeah, going in cold. (laughs) So students get a stack of 30 cards. Each one has a picture of a different career Barbie on it, and they have to try to put the Barbies in order of when they were introduced. Are you ready to try this? Yeah. Do you know what the very first Barbie's job was? The first Barbie's job. Was it um, like a teacher? Oh, that's a really good guess. It was fashion model. Fashion model. Okay. So fashion model was Barbie's first job. Now, here is astronaut Barbie, if you want to look at this card. Yeah. So what year, roughly, would you guess this astronaut Barbie was introduced? Wait, when did we go to the moon? Let's say 1969. Oh, good guess. It's actually 1965. Oh. But if you think about it, this astronaut Barbie came out four years before the moon landing and almost 20 years before Sally Ride became the first American woman to go to space. Huh. So Barbie is like... Ahead of the curve. Yes, exactly. So throughout the years, Barbie's career has sometimes been a leading indicator of what was going on with women in the workforce. For example, Surgeon Barbie came out in 1973 when there were barely any women in that specialty. Other times, Barbie's career has been a lagging indicator, reflecting jobs where women were already well represented, like nurse or teacher. Teacher Barbie rings the bell for recess fun and gives a hug for a job. Barb Flower says that Barbie's jobs have always been this mix of jobs that were more aspirational and those that were actually more reflective of the kinds of jobs women actually held during the time. And in some ways, that mirrors Barb's own career in economics and teaching. In my economics classes, I was one of very few women. And when in grad school, oh my goodness, there were very few. But then when I got into education. Now I was back with, uh, you know, the women in education. Do you ever think about what retirement Barbie would look like? Uh, probably a lot like me. And is she still wearing heels or is she wearing like gardening clogs? No, I have not worn heels in a long time. Barbie's pretty laid back. <laughs> this Barbie is. That is the kind of aspirational figure that I can get behind. Right? Yeah, like a laid back, cool, retired economic educator. <laughs> yeah, chilling, comfortable shoes. Adrian Ma, Waylon Wong, and PR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. 
On Monday, an epic journey will culminate at a beach in Seattle. Canoes paddled by indigenous people from all over the West Coast are convening for an annual celebration that is resuming for the first time since the pandemic began. Oregon Public Broadcasting's Emily Curitan-Cook joined one canoe on the first leg of its 500-mile voyage and brought back this story. On the banks of the Columbia River between Oregon and Washington, 20 young people line up beside a canoe that's as long as a school bus. All right, so life jackets are going to be over here. So go ahead and grab a jacket. They come from different tribes, but they all share a common history with the canoe. For years, it was how people in the Pacific Northwest traveled, fished, and visited one another. This canoe is modern, it's made of plastic, and it's one of over a hundred vessels that are traveling by river and sea to visit the Muckleshoot Indian tribe. The canoe's arrival will be followed by a week of celebration. The tradition started about 40 years ago, and it's become beloved by many Northwest tribes. Anyone need a paddle? 17-year-old Carlicia Dixon missed this trip during the pandemic. She's of Nez Perce and Warm Springs heritage. I'm taking this journey to find where I'm at spiritually. COVID really did have a big impact on my mental health, physical health, and just how I feel. She says being on the water clears her mind. You could think on the water, you could sing on the water, you could, you just find yourself in the water really peacefully. After three years apart, the people on this journey are excited to see each other but they also carry grief. They've lost people since the last time they did this, says one of the trip leaders, Misty Green. I almost like, yeah, like I start almost crying too because like, um, you know, because of COVID, we've lost a lot of our elders. And so there's almost like the sense of emptiness as well, but that's also like a part of like our healing. Misty and her husband, Jefferson Green, run a nonprofit to preserve mid-Columbia river cultures. They say that among those who died were most of the remaining speakers of the region's indigenous languages. And they want to inspire young people to learn. Jefferson begins a day on the water with a quick lesson. So this part of the Columbia River is actually called We Mush. Can you say that word? We Mush. We Mush. We Mush. Jefferson has spent the last 13 years studying and teaching Ichishkin, a dialect of the Sahaptan language. He says people who join the canoe journey leave as family, whether or not they're related. You just end up returning to home, yearning for this constant connection to people and the thing that connects you are the songs. For 24-year-old Samuel Jim, who's Yakima, this is the first time he's ever been on a canoe. And he says it's been beautiful to share cultural knowledge with other people on the trip. I really want to dive back into my culture have that experience and so I can teach that to my son. When the canoe comes ashore at the end of the day, supporters who follow along on land are there to cheer. As the group nears Seattle, dozens more canoes join them. At the destination, thousands of people will gather to eat, dance and sing day and night through the week. For NPR News, I'm Emily Curitan Cook in Cascade Locks, Oregon.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at cysimsfoundation.org. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Nearly half the U.S. is in the midst of a heat health emergency as temperatures reach 100 degrees or higher for some 114 million people. Eastern Massachusetts avoided a heat wave as temperatures today came just short of 90 degrees. We could hit 90 tomorrow, though. It's Friday, July 28th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, as Russia wraps up its high-level summit with African countries today, we look at how much real influence Russia has on the continent. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates again this week to try to reduce inflation, but big brands from Kimberly-Clark to Chipotle say their shoppers seem to be unswayed by higher prices. And a year ago, wages were rising, but inflation was eating away what people could buy with that pay. And right now, wages are growing faster than prices. So in real terms, uh, on average, people's purchasing power is increasing. That story coming up on Marketplace starting at 6.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The White House is deeply concerned about events unfolding in the African nation of Niger, where leaders of an apparent coup there say they have replaced the country's president. But the U.S. says there's still diplomacy going on to restore constitutional order in Niger, a key U.S. partner. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has more. While a general claims to be the new head of state in Niger, the U.S., the United Nations, and a regional African group are all backing the ousted president, Mohamed Bazoum. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the U.S. is watching closely. We believe uh, that there is still space for diplomacy here and that that diplomacy is actively being pursued, not just by the United States, but by our, our allies and partners and our African partners as well. The U.S. has about 1,000 troops in Niger, an important base for counterterrorism efforts in the region. Kirby says there are no plans yet to change the U.S. footprint. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The National Weather Service says two-thirds of the U.S. population, around 200 million people, are facing heat advisories or a flood watch or a warning. 
morning. The latest of the summer's intense weather waves began yesterday. Climate expert Jeremy Hoffman of Groundwork USA says that due to multiple conditions, the heat is felt more intensely in communities of color. These extreme heat waves are disproportionately dangerous for communities of color and lower income communities, simply because these areas tend to have many fewer trees and much more uh, infrastructure like parking lots and roads in them that actually absorb more of the sun's energy. Hoffman says people in these neighborhoods experience high rates of heat-related illnesses. Justice Samuel Alito says he does not think Congress has any authority to impose a code of ethics on the U.S. Supreme Court. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports. The Federal Code of Judicial Conduct applies to lower court judges and Supreme Court justices for decades have complied with the financial disclosure provisions. But in an interview with two columnists from the conservative Wall Street Journal editorial page, Justice Alito said that as far as he's concerned, his compliance is voluntary. I know this is a controversial view, but I'm willing to say it, he told the journal. No provision in the Constitution gives them the authority to regulate the Supreme Court, period. Alito has taken to the pages of the Wall Street Journal before, most recently to respond angrily to published reports about his failure to disclose an all-expense-paid luxury fishing trip to Alaska paid for by large Republican donors. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 176 points, closing at 35,459. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A major development today on the overdue state budget. House and Senate Democrats say they've reached an agreement in principle on the fiscal 2024 budget. The leaders of the conference committee say they're now working on details of a final bill. The legislature could pass it Monday and send it on to the governor. One month into the new fiscal year, the state is operating on a temporary spending plan. A heat advisory remains in effect for most of the state through tomorrow night. Meteorologist Glenn Field says there's more to the heat to be con- uh, there's more to be concerned about rather than just the heat. We are concerned with another round of some strong thunderstorms, uh, possibly severe thunderstorms, kind of like what we saw on Thursday, a lot of lightning uh, and um, the potential for damaging winds as well as hail. And we can't even rule out an isolated tornado somewhere, uh, especially in central Massachusetts. Field says the main threat for severe weather tomorrow is from 1 to 9 p.m., but he says there could be a few stray thunderstorms tomorrow morning as well. The city of Worcester is using its senior center and library as cooling centers. The city's commissioner of health and human services, Maddie Castile, says they're concerned for people who are experiencing homelessness and those who have chronic conditions. The people who get most aggravated with the heat is going to be people with already medical problems, whether it's heart disease and um, and they may present with those uh, with those symptoms, but exacerbated by the heat. A study by the Urban Climate Consulting Group estimates about eight people a year die from heat in Worcester. 88 degrees now in the Boston area. Hazy sunshine this evening. Overnight tonight, clear skies falling to about the mid-70s tonight. And for tomorrow, some clouds collecting during the day. Thunderstorms possibly in the afternoon. Highs could come close to 90. Sunday, sunny and really nice. May not even break 80 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. 
on the web at theschmidt.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Recession? What recession? The numbers are in and things are looking pretty darn good. Painting a picture of insatiable American shoppers and an economy that seems to be looking ahead through rose-tinted glasses. NPR's Alina Seljuk and Stacey Vanek-Smith have been studying all these numbers. They are both here in the studio to tell us what they have found, and they have brought a bag. Alina. Here's the bag. What's the bag? It's a first, actually, for me. A paper bag in the studio. Yeah, because the theme of the economy this summer is spending. Let me say that again. A really surprising amount of spending. So we thought we should jump in and spend some money, too. So we went shopping and we picked up some of the things that Americans are buying right now to help paint a picture of what is going on in the economy. Excellent. You've brought loot. Okay, what did you you bring? All right. Let's start with this Reese's peanut butter cup. Oh, yes. The big one. And some Coke to wash it down. Would you like a a Coke, Mary Louise? No, but I will take those Reese's. Pass them over. (laughs) Here you (laughs) go. Here, I'm going to throw the you two brought me these wise that are making these products, Hershey and Coca-Cola, were among many that basically sang praises to shoppers, saying they've been raising prices, trying to cover higher costs like corn syrup, but people are still willing to pay up for brand names. And this has major implications for our economy because all of this spending that we're doing has the economy going gangbusters. We heard yesterday the economy is growing at a rate of 2.4 percent. That was a lot higher than people were expecting. And it is all this money that we are throwing around for goods, things like chocolate and Coke, but also for services. We are shelling out a ton of money for things like restaurants, shows, summer travel, which brings us to the next item in our haul. <laughs> okay, this is less exciting. This is, this is like the, the hotel doorknob sign? It is a do not disturb sign from my Hilton Hotel, which I technically did not buy. I borrowed this mm-hmm. sign, but I did pay for my stay. <laughs> and so did a lot of other people. Travel is huge. It's hard to overstate. Hilton, the hotel chain where Stacy borrowed her sign from, it had one of the more eye-opening reports this week. The company says people are spending more and more across all types of hotels, from the humble Garden Inn to the posh Waldorf Astoria. Here's CEO Chris Nassetta. And The other thing that's going on is I sort of kid not to, to be a smart ass about it, but part of it's pricing, right? Pricing, as in hotel prices, are at record highs. And Hilton was kind of like, good, we'll keep going as long as people are into it. And so far, travelers are not really pushing back. You could say companies are having a hot profit summer. A hot profit summer. Okay. And speaking of hot profits... I'm pulling something out of the bag. Oh, my God. What is this? Pink ponytail? It is a pink hair clip um, that I purchased in honor of the impact that 
all things female are having on the economy, or as you could say, the she-economy. <laughs> the she-economy? <laughs> we may need to workshop that. It's a better name. But there is no question that a lot of our good economic news is coming from the ladies right now. Take Taylor Swift and Beyonce. They are shaking up economies. The Federal Reserve just produced a report on the economic impact of Taylor Swift. Apparently, she's adding $5 billion to the global economy. $5 billion. $5 billion with her tour. And Beyonce got a lot of criticism from economists for pushing up inflation in the country of Sweden. <laughs> because apparently, when she had a concert there, the prices of hotels, food, and everything else went up. And, of course, we've got to talk about our lady of the hour. Barbie. Barbie, indeed. She's been busting all of these box office records. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. I haven't actually gone to see it yet because I've spent all week listening to earnings calls. Don't feel sad for me. Um, It was kind of fascinating because brand after brand was saying basically they're charging more. They keep waiting for people to resist and people are still buying. And why? Because I feel like y'all are always here reporting to us about rising prices and how people are struggling and tightening their budget belts. Has all that gone away? Surely not. Well, part of the answer is that we are going into a lot of debt to buy all this stuff. Credit card debt is at a record high right now, and it's been at a record high for a while. It's just been rising and rising. Also, though, we do have more money to spend. Uh, People are getting raises. Wages have been rising all across the country. I heard this a lot from companies, too. The labor costs are going up for them. They're having to pay higher wages. They're offsetting these costs, charging more for our meals. But also they're trying to get maybe robots to do some of the work. Like Chipotle is working on Autocado, which is a machine that makes its guacamole, uh, which apparently is a pretty tedious task. I actually um, got some chips and guac here. It's all the snacks. Um, This one was made by hand by a woman. Okay. This all sounds pretty good. Like higher wages sounds like good news for for workers. Uh, It also sounds like good news for the economy because we seem to be spending all this money on all this stuff. Well, it is, like you say, good news for workers and for companies, but it has economists pretty nervous because when wages are rising like this, it can create something called a wage price spiral. So when companies raise people's wages, they charge higher prices to be able to afford those wages. And then we all go ask for raises to be able to afford for those higher prices. And it can create this cycle that can really push up inflation. And in fact, this week, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates once again. They are now at their highest level in 22 years. I thought inflation was falling. Inflation is falling. That is true. Um, But the Federal Reserve has been stressing over and over again that some prices are still very much rising. We're not out of the woods yet. And like Alina was saying, a lot of companies are testing the pricing limits. So the Federal Reserve has said They may need to take more action that could lead to job losses and possibly an economic downturn in our future. That is NPR Stacey Vanek-Smith and Alina Seljuk. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. And please pass the guacamole over here, please, (laughs) right away. 
Russian President Vladimir Putin wraps up his high-level summit with African leaders in St. Petersburg today. While Western nations have largely isolated Moscow after the invasion of Ukraine, many African leaders have maintained closer links, treading the tricky path of diplomatic neutrality. Russia wants to use the summit to strengthen its ties in Africa. But as NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports, Russia faces an uphill task. This slick video produced by the Russian Foreign Ministry shows a succession of African leaders arriving at St. Petersburg Airport, all smiles and shaking hands with their hosts. But in the end, it hasn't been the gathering Russia hoped for. Only 17 African leaders turned up this time, far fewer than the 43 that attended the first summit in Sochi in 2019. And the impact of the Ukraine invasion has been significant. Global prices of grain and fertilizers have soared. This month, Russia exited the Black Sea grain deal and is now blocking ships from exporting Ukrainian grain. So Putin announced a plan. Russia would deliver free grain to six countries to cushion the blow. But it remains to be seen how it will work and if this summit will truly signal its ties are growing, not just in the handful of countries where its activities have sparked concern. This action film is one of the images Russia has tried to project. The opening music from The Tourist, a 2021 movie financed by Wagner and set in the Central African Republic. In the narrative, the so-called Russian gladiators weighed in to save an African country. It's not that far from reality. Russian ties with their governments have deepened in the Central African Republic and Mali. Wagner mercenaries now work side by side with those countries' armies. They've left a long trail of human rights abuses and extrajudicial killings. But across Africa, Russia's activities are different and more complicated. Russia's value right now is as a signal that the West is not always going to get what it wants. Amaka Anku is head of Eurasia Group's Africa practice and said aside from some countries like Qatar, Mali, Algeria and Egypt, Russia's ties are more symbolic. It's a proxy for saying we're not picking sides. It's a proxy for pushing back in some ways on Western hegemony. In the last few years, competition for stronger ties and influence in Africa has grown more intense between countries like Russia, China and the US. But Russia's economic ties are currently weaker. It doesn't have money. It barely buys anything from Africa. It's not selling that much to Africa. In West Africa, much of the relationships is around security, because that's what it has to offer. In Southern Africa, much of the relationship is around historical bonds, because the Soviet Union was there for liberation movements when the West wasn't. And Russia's isolation from the West means it must boost its ties elsewhere. It's important to keep in mind, for example, that the total trade volume between Russia and Africa is less than that of Turkey. Dr. Samu Romani is an analyst and author of Russia and Africa. He says a key aim for the summit is improving its trade with African partners. Meanwhile, he says many African countries see the rise in competition as an opportunity. I think that African countries have uh, navigated the competitive terrain, I think, uh, quite deftly. They want to balance and maintain ties with the US, Europe, China, Russia. For Russia, the slick optics of the summit is about projecting its importance on the world stage. And more than ever, its ties to African countries are vital to that. Emmanuel Akimwotu, NPR News, 
Lagos. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this evening. The end of the Dead & Company tour could mean the end of Shakedown Street. That's the flea market that follows the band. Tonight on Marketplace, we look at what will happen to this mini economy of fans and the vendors who cater to them. That's coming up on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. Stocks were back on the plus side today. The Dow rose a half percent. S&P rose a full percent to notch its third straight week of gains. The Nasdaq picked up nearly 2% today. In other business news, Cambridge-based Biogen is buying Riata Pharmaceuticals. Riata is based in Texas and focuses on drugs that treat rare diseases. The deal will cost Biogen more than $7 billion dollars. It still has to be approved by regulators and by Riata shareholders. This is WBUR. A reminder, there's still big backups on Route 95 northbound in Danvers right now because of an accident involving a van. There are backups mostly northbound but also southbound again. That's on 95 in Danvers. It's 619. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Bionova Scientific, a biologic CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services to small and mid-sized biopharmaceutical companies. BionovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. Coming up tonight, a July night without a thunderstorm in sight. Here's WBUR's meteorologist, Danielle Noyce. Storm-free, hot summer evening out there. Temperatures slowly fall into the 70s overnight tonight. Heat advisory remains in effect for tomorrow. High of 90, heat index low to mid-90s. And it'll be a bit of an unsettled day. Chance of a shower storm in the morning, then scattered afternoon and evening storms. Some could contain damaging gusts, localized flooding, hail, and frequent lightning. So monitor for warnings. It'll be a totally different feel on Sunday, though. Partly cloudy, less humid, high 75 to 80, with a low risk of an isolated shower. 85 degrees now in the Boston area. The Red Sox are working late tonight. They've got a 10-15 start time out in San Francisco as they begin a three-game series with the Giants. Cutter Crawford pitches against Logan Webb. The Sox don't return to Fenway Park until a week from today. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. A dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. And DEC, working with CEOs, business leaders, and industry experts with a goal of crafting clear, authentic presentations. More at PresentationsByDEC.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. The heat presses on for another full day. The heat advisory stays up until 8 tomorrow night. So remember to keep hydrated and stay out of the sun if you can. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare and a new food truck, available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. On a scorching summer day, there are fewer sounds more comforting than this. 
Air conditioning can provide not only comfort, but life-saving relief from relentless heat. But as you may have noticed from your summertime electricity bill, typical AC units use a ton of energy. So companies are coming up with new ways to make cooling off more energy efficient. Climate and energy reporter Casey Crownhart wrote about it this week for the MIT Technology Review. Hey, Casey. Hi, Juana. So, Casey, you wrote that not only is typical AC technology really energy intensive, but there's also this intense global demand for it in places where it's not already pervasive. Can you just start by giving us a sense of what that demand looks like, how much we're talking about? Absolutely. Um, I think we in the U.S. tend to think of air conditioning as being pretty much everywhere. But globally, that's definitely not the case. Um, Of the roughly 3 billion people that live in the hottest parts of the world, only about 1 in 10 has access to air conditioning. Um, And so as we've seen the last few weeks, temperatures are rising. So there's a huge demand for cooling um, that's expected to take off. Over the next few decades, we could see energy demand for air conditioning triple by 2050. Wow. Um, And that's about the same as adding a whole nother U.S. electrical grid on just to run all of those new air conditioners. I mean, that sounds like a huge feat. I know that you have been looking into some promising developments in AC technology, but like many people listening in on our conversation, I need a quick refresher on how a typical AC works and why it is that it sucks up so much energy. Yeah, you're definitely not alone in that. Um, But basically, the the way that an air conditioner works is that there's a refrigerant inside and it gets pumped around in a cycle. And so that refrigerant sucks up heat from inside of your house, apartment, building, and then it releases that heat out into the outside air. And so it can take a lot of energy. And, And a lot of that comes from also having to get humidity out of the air, getting water out of the inside and condensing it into a liquid and getting it out is is really energy intensive as well. You're also right that one of the materials companies are turning to for these new AC systems are desiccants, like those little packets that you sometimes find in food packaging. How does that work? Yeah, so this is a really interesting kind of way to change up air conditioning technology, which you know hasn't changed too much since it was invented around 100 years ago. Desiccants are basically any kind of material that can suck moisture out of the air. So I talked about how you know humidity is a big part of that energy demand. And so how these desiccants can work is they're able to kind of take care of that humidity piece. And so then if you're pairing these materials with other kinds of cooling technologies, they can kind of cut down on the energy that's needed to cool spaces. So I'm sort of fascinated by these newer AC systems that you've been looking into. Tell us how much energy could they save potentially compared to standard units today? And would a cheaper electricity bill just be offset by a higher price tag on the unit itself? Really good questions. So I will say that a lot of the companies that are working on this are kind of still in the early stages. You know, they have kind of their pilot or demonstration systems out. But I talked to one company, they're called Blue Frontier, and they're based in Florida. And they say that they think that their system will be able to cut annual electricity use by between 50 and 80 percent. And they do say that it will probably be more expensive up front. They're targeting, you know, kind of a payback date of, you know, three to five years or so. That's how long it'll take for the efficiency improvements to kind of pay for themselves through lower energy bills. So for the rest of the lifetime of the unit, then you're kind of, you know, able to to see those savings. So Casey, then, is the bigger price tag up front a barrier for these new AC technologies being able to be adopted in places where demand is growing so much today, like in developing countries? 
Yeah, I mean, it absolutely can be. And that's the case today. There's actually a pretty big difference between, you know, the cheapest air conditioners on the market today and kind of the higher end ones that are already more efficient than those kind of lower end systems. Um, And so I think we're definitely going to need to see things like, you know, new business models from companies that help finance these models or policy from governments so that, you know, more people can actually get access to them. Climate and energy reporter Casey Crownhart of the MIT Technology Review. Casey, thank you. Thank you. A number of news outlets are now reporting the 75th Emmy Awards have been postponed due to ongoing strikes by Hollywood writers and actors. It's the first such delay since the Emmys were postponed after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Here's Frank Shurma, chairman of the Television Academy, which presents the awards announcing nominations back on July 12th and sounding like the September air date might not be set in stone. And join us for the 75th Emmy Awards. Currently planned for Monday, September 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox. NPR TV critic Eric Diggins is with us now. Hey there. Hi. Okay, tell me more about this delay and when we might actually see the Emmys broadcast. Yeah, it looks like those current plans didn't quite turn out. So so far, Fox and the TV Academy have refused to comment on the record, but the trade publication Variety reported yesterday that vendors working on the show were notified that the Emmys would be delayed. Now, the Los Angeles Times has reported the ceremonies moving to January, but I haven't yet heard a definitive date in my own reporting. This isn't particularly surprising to those of us who watch the industry. I mean, I said on this show, when the Emmy nominations were announced more than two weeks ago, that I didn't expect the show to go on September 18th if the actors went on strike, and that's exactly what happened. You told us so. (laughs) We should have listened. Um, I will note the Tony Awards did go on, even in the wake of the writers' strike. Why can't the Emmys move forward? Well, in the past, you know, the TV Academy has indicated um, that they plan to stick with their original schedule of voting, which means final votes on nominees would begin August 17th and end August 28th. They're going to reveal publicly the winners whenever the telecast happens. But you got to remember that actors weren't on strike during the Tony Awards. Mm. And uh, the Tonys got the Writers Guild of America to agree not to picket them. So in the case of the Emmys, both the writers and the actors are barred from promoting projects that are covered by the strike. So most of the televised winners wouldn't be able to show up until the strikes are over. And it's a tough blow for the Emmys because they were looking forward to celebrating their 75th ceremony one year after the 2020 two telecasts, which drew the lowest ratings in the awards history. Uh-huh. Well, that's an interesting point. Given yeah. uh, those low ratings, given that audiences have shown less interest in award ceremonies in recent years, do we even care that the Emmy Awards are delayed? Well, you know, I've always said uh, that events like the pandemic shut down and now these strikes accelerate trends in media that are already underway. So, yeah, it might accelerate a disinterest in the Emmys. But this is also an example of how the cost of these strikes are beginning to gather steam. The African-American Film Critics Association is also moving its TV Honors Awards from August to October 29th. This could be a really tough moment for the Emmys because the show airs in January 2024. It'll be honoring shows that aired quite a long time ago. Mm -hmm. The ceremony might look like a step behind shows like the Golden Globes and the Critics' Choice Awards, which are planned for early 2024, but they have later deadlines than the Emmys. I mean, years ago, the Emmys used to kick off the new fall broadcast TV season, but now you might have a situation where somebody like Jamie Lee Curtis, who did a great job on The Bear on Uh FX, won't even be nominated for 
and Emmys, but she could win Golden Globes or Critics' Choice Awards. Alrighty, thank you, Eric. Thank you. That's NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Hazy sunshine leads to a clear night tonight, falling to about the mid-70s overnight. Then for tomorrow, some sunshine early. Clouds could collect during the day. Thunderstorms spending part of tomorrow afternoon. Highs could come close to 90 degrees. Sunday, sunny and beautiful, more comfortable. May not even break 80 degrees. It's 630. We're funded by you, our listeners. And by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting As We Rise, Photography from the Black Atlantic. On view now. More at PEM.org.